Now then, looking uh, to God for his help and his guidance, let's turn to the passage of Scripture we read. John chapter 4. And reading at verse 6, where Christ comes into the village or uh, a town called Sychar, where Jacob's well was, Jesus therefore being weary from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour or twelve noon. And we read then that a woman of Samaria came to draw water. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Now, after uh, some time uh, baptizing in the rural area of Judea, the Lord withdraws from there. Interestingly, he withdraws with a view to avoid controversy. Sometimes the Lord, sometimes the Lord took on a controversy if need be, but most of the time he walked away from it. I've got things to say in that connection, but it's best kept till next time. So he avoided unnecessary confrontation and he returned to Galilee, or at least that was his ultimate destination. But he took the unusual route of going there through Samaria. And he comes to the town of Sychar, and just outside that town there was a well, a well that was very well known to people because it was Jacob's well. That's going back nearly 2,000 years. And the Lord sat as he was at the well, tired, weary, and exhausted. And that's where he surprisingly at 12 noon, we'll see why that's a surprise later on, but that's where he surprisingly meets this woman whose name we don't know, she's just become known to posterity as the woman of Samaria. And so follows one of the great personal encounters of the New Testament between Christ and this woman. Now, I think it's fair to say that the personal encounters that are recorded for us in the Bible have a particular fascination and attraction for us. And I think there's a few reasons for that, some obvious ones. First of all, they're all very powerful reminders that a personal God deals personally with us. Although he is interested in groups of people, aggregates and societies and nations, he is fundamentally and first of all concerned with individual souls. And we all need to realise that tonight. That God is concerned with a big picture and with groups of peoples and nations of peoples. But fundamentally, first and foremost, he is concerned with your soul and mine without exception. And the personal encounters remind us of that. I suppose, too, it's only fair to say that the personal encounters will remind those of you who are Christians tonight that you yourself have had a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And these encounters remind you of how and when the Lord met yourself. How he made himself known to your soul in the reading, in the preaching, or in the witnessing of friends. And how he came finally to give you living water and to bring you from darkness into his own marvellous land. So every personal encounter reawakens your own personal encounter with your Lord and Saviour. I think too that these personal encounters are interesting because of the sheer variety of them. And if you read them, you'll discover just how varied they are. Now, we sometimes say that people are the same. And in some ways, people are the same. In the most important ways, people are the same. Not just bound by our common humanity, but by our common fall and sinfulness, under God's wrath and under God's condemnation. All in need of salvation, we're bound up by that. But still, it's also true that we're different. Different backgrounds, cultures, experiences, different habits of thought, different judgments, and so on. And that, of course, comes through in this part of Scripture itself. Only a few weeks ago, we were looking in some detail at Christ's meeting with Nicodemus. Another personal encounter, perhaps the best known of all the personal encounters. But that was an encounter between Christ and a respectable churchman who thought himself saved. This, on the other hand, is an encounter between Christ and what we can only assume is a disreputable woman in Samaria. But you couldn't find two more different people living in proximity to each other. But there's a reason why these things are recorded. These things are reminders to us that irrespective of background, culture and privileges, Christ is there for us, he is interested in all of us, and will receive all of us on repentance into his kingdom. There is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now I don't say that it doesn't matter in your life what kind of life you live. Of course it does. Choices are important. They will bring you nearer to God or further from God. But at the end of the day, we are all sinners. And two encounters like this remind us that, irrespective of difference, the Lord is interested in our souls and is calling us to salvation. Now then, I want us to look uh, for a while, uh, for a few weeks, God willing at this meeting, and the conversation between Christ and the woman of Samaria. And I'd like to do it, as the Lord enables us, by coming at it perhaps from a a slightly different point of view. Rather than seeing it from uh, the Lord's point of view, just to turn around and to look at it more from the woman's own point of view. To see it from her perspective. And to notice carefully what she said and what she did, which are on the page, but also insofar as we're able, what she thought and how she felt. Because far more of these things are available for us than we realize. So let's ask God to help us see these things, understand them, and see how they apply to ourselves. That's always the critical thing, is it not? 
And they always do apply to ourselves. The word of God is written for all of us. So you pray yourself that the Lord would show you yourself and show you what scripture here applies to you. Now let's see what we can gather then. And perhaps we can begin just by noticing where this woman is from or where she lives. She is from Samaria. Samaria is a small square of land, 48 kilometers by 40. In other words, pretty much the size of the island we're in, the Isle of Lewis. It lies between Galilee in the north and Judah in the south. So that the quickest way from Judah to Galilee is right up through Samaria. But as we'll see later, Jews and Samaritans didn't get on. And so normally to pass from Judea to Galilee, you would move east first to the other side of the Jordan, move north and then cross over into Galilee. I'll say more about that. Previously, Samaria used to be part of the northern kingdom of Israel. And the capital city of Israel was actually located there. But 700 years before now, 700 years before the time of Jesus, the ten northern tribes of Israel were deported by the Assyrian king. Uh, They were taken away into captivity and scattered really across the globe. Uh, Nobody knows where their descendants are except God. And the day will come, of course, when God will recall and regather them as he has actually promised to do. But the fact of the matter is that they were scattered by the Assyrian king. And the Assyrian king repopulated the area of Samaria with other peoples, peoples with different backgrounds, different religions, just to take away the identity of the place. And that process was continued by Alexander the Great, the great king of Greece. And by the time of our Lord, Samaria is just a mixed place. You could say it's a mixed up place. It certainly is that too, but it's a mixed place. It has at least seven religions And several languages are spoken there, mainly the Greek language. So that's where this woman comes from. Again, I'll come back to this a little later, but that's enough for now. What we really want to know is something about herself and her circumstances. And the first thing to say in connection with that is that she's an open sinner. She is an open sinner. In other words, not just simply a sinner, which we all are, but very visibly and openly so. Living in open defiance of God's law. Now again, when I say she's an open sinner, I suppose, again, in some ways, we all are open sinners. I mean, it's impossible really to live in one another's company for any length of time without realising that we're all sinners. But... I think you know what I mean by saying so. She has chosen a lifestyle that is clearly against the law of God. She's done that. And the Lord draws attention to it. Well, he checks her truthfulness and her honesty. He tells her to go and call her husband so he can join the conversation. 
And she actually comes out with it and says that she doesn't have a husband. Now, she only part comes out of it. Uh, the Lord actually relieves the strain by filling it in for her. Yes, he says, that's correct. You've said so honestly. But I know the truth about you as one who searches you and knows you. You're sitting down, you're rising up. Even the journey that you would take today, I know that you have had five husbands and that the one that you are living with just now is not your husband. Yes, you've told me the truth that you have no husband, but I know the whole truth. Now, I admit that it is possible that she had five husbands who either died young or suddenly or of disease or even in war. But the way that Christ raises this whole matter makes it evident that that is obviously not really the issue. He, he is coming to the woman's problem. He's coming to the woman's spiritual condition before God. What she is actually like and what her relationship with God is like or the lack of. So, so he has a re, his reasons for pointing this out. There's been something wrong with these relationships. And what's more, that is why he highlights the particular fact that the one that she is now with is not her husband. There is something wrong. She's living in this kind of relationship, even though the fact is that in Samaria itself, marriage was still highly respected, and this kind of life would be frowned upon. And sometimes societies can disintegrate quite far, but retain a respect for marriage. Ours is on the path where respect for it, obviously, is fast disappearing. It's being redefined out of existence anyway. But she's chosen, for whatever reason, to live a life that is against the law of God. Now, sometimes you can see people just take on this kind of life and they may know it's against um, a community sense of what's right and wrong. Even more fundamentally, they might know that it is against the law of God as it is written in the Bible. But for whatever reason, maybe they don't accept that law. Or, uh, they just want to defy it and make a statement about their freedom, the kind of life that they chose to live. You can, of course, make that kind of statement in other ways. By choosing another kind of life. You know, this is me, this is my life, take it or leave it, this is how I choose to live. But she has chosen to be an open saint. From that, we can infer something else. We can infer that she is probably unfulfilled and unhappy. Because five marriages can't disintegrate and she's now simply in a relationship with somebody without something being fundamentally wrong. Her life hasn't worked out. I think we would all agree that nobody wants to have five marriages in life but she has had five and nothing's gone right. Who's to blame? The husbands? If there have been five husbands maybe it's herself. Has she ever asked herself if she herself is to blame? It's possible that she's wanted something out of marriage that she never got. 
And most people want marriage for the reason God gave it. God appointed it for relationship, for mutual help, growth together, two becoming one, preferably, ideally, in the knowledge of God as well as of each other. It's a gift, a gift from God. But obviously she's never found what she's looking for in a marriage. And sometimes, friends, well, the reasons for that may be many, but very often the reason we don't get what we look for in a marriage or anywhere else is because we're looking for something that can't be found in a marriage. Although God gives us social relationships, he gives us family, he gives us husbands and wives to have relationships and fellowship and a knowledge of each other and love and trust and all these things, none of these things are meant or were ever meant to be a substitute for a relationship with God himself. And if they are that, then they just won't be that. You'll never find in a husband or in a wife what you're supposed to find in God. In fact, you'll never find that in anybody. Even your best friend, whoever he or she may be. And that's the reason why there is so much of a lack of fulfillment in people's lives. I mean, I mean, just look around you in the country and even compare it with 40 years ago. People are so unfulfilled, so hard to satisfy, so easily and quickly disillusioned. Nothing satisfies. Of course it doesn't, friends. Because fundamentally, only God satisfies. And if you have this relationship with God, where he indwells your heart, you know him, and he knows you, and you are in a relationship of love, and you are safe and secure in the Almighty's grasp, ever growing in the knowledge of him, then you won't need anything else for your fulfillment. Um, by that I mean that you'll certainly take whatever else God offers you you'll take the wife that God gives you the husband that God gives you but no failure or shortcoming there will take away your lack of fulfillment why? because you know God and when you know God you've got everything you've got everything in God that's why you sometimes see Christians who are broken and battered by many things that go against them in this life. But they rise up to be more than conquerors through the Lord Jesus Christ who loved them and who gave himself for them. And I often look at people who are looking for fulfillment in relationships that very often God prohibits in the word of God and think, well, well maybe that will give me satisfaction. Maybe in same-sex relationships or something like that. Maybe I can find a satisfaction. No. It's never going to happen. Until you find satisfaction with God. And when you find satisfaction in God, you'll discover you don't really need that other thing that you are looking for. This woman is unfulfilled. She knows that. And the Lord knows that. And it's wonderful to think that the fulfillment that we have with God when we come to faith in Christ Jesus is a fulfillment that never ends. You know, the, the best relationships in this life, however good they are, are finished with death. 
finished with death. And certainly if you're going to hell yourself, if you're going to a lost eternity, no relationship will endure. They will all utterly be fragmented. There's no such thing as a friend in a lost eternity. But this relationship with God endures. And the life that you have in that relationship is called eternal life. Not just because it never ends, but because it's so great and so big and so vast. And that's why all of you who are in Christians in here tonight look forward to eternity. You look forward to it. You can genuinely smile in the face of death, knowing him in whom you have believed, and knowing that you will know him, and know him more and more into the endless ages of eternity. So she's an open sinner, unfulfilled, therefore unhappy. Also from the passage, and I suppose following on from that, we can infer her loneliness. Now there's two reasons why we can infer that. The first has to do with the fact that her lifestyle is not really approved of. The second reason we can infer it is because she's on her own at the well at 12 noon. Because nobody was ever on their own at the well on 12 noon. A trip to the well for a woman was a social occasion. When I was ministering last in Glasgow, they often used to refer to the Steeny as a place where women gathered and shared. And there were many similar situations on the islands too. Women looked forward to a place where they could be with other women and speak and not just share news but have fellowship. Going to the well was a place of interaction and in fact you find that at various places in the scripture. People interacting at the well. Women never went alone. They went twice a day, sharp in the morning to get fresh cold water and they went pretty much last thing at night. Sometimes a well could be a dangerous place. You see that in Moses' day. You see it also um, in Isaac's day where some women were being harassed at the well by some men who had gathered there, but never on their own. But here she is, on her own, at noon, when she knows nobody's going to be there. Thankfully, she's wrong this time. But she doesn't expect anyone to be there. You know, um, it doesn't matter how hard you try to fight loneliness, it really kicks in. And it kicks in as life goes on. And you'll discover that meaningful friendships and fellowships are increasingly scarce. And especially if, as you see it, as she would have seen it, that life deals her just a bit of a difficult and a bitter hand. She's probably glad to be alone at the well, but at the end of the day, nobody is. Nobody wants to be alone, really. Even the people who want to be alone don't actually want to be alone, because nobody wants to be alone. Nobody was made to be alone. And I referred a moment ago to the, to the lost eternity that awaits us all. Uh, I, I often think in connection with it of people who used to say, well, I would rather go to hell because all my friends are there. I'm sure you've heard an expression like that which is as foolish as much as anything else. Do you really think that they're your friends there? 
Do you think that there is such a thing as community and friendship and fellowship in hell? No, there's not a trace of that in the scripture. When you see the rich man in hell and he shouts across the chasm to Abraham and he asks Abraham to send Lazarus, who is of course in heaven, to send Lazarus across the chasm so that he can dip the tip of his finger in water and just touch his tongue because he is tormented in the flame. It's not just the fact that such a thing is impossible to do. But the fact is that there's no one around him to do it. Why? Because it's a lonely place. And sometimes people realize that the more alone they are in this world, the more, the more hellish the world becomes. And there's no place as lonely as hell. And this woman is lonely. And deep down in her heart, she's obviously looking for something that she has just not found. And that takes me to something else, that in spite of all that, and who knows what age she is, she is still looking for something. That's obvious from the way that Christ speaks to her, introduces her to the concept of living water, and begins to talk around her deepest needs and how he can meet those deepest needs. She's still looking and searching. She's seeking. Now, if you're going to say to me she's seeking God, I would say to you, well, it's actually not as simple as that because in a way she is, in a way she isn't. When I say in a way she is, what I mean by that is she's actually looking for something that only God can satisfy. But she's not actually looking for that God. She, she doesn't know that that's where the answer to her questions actually lie. Maybe you don't either. The thing that you want in life, this fulfillment and sense of happiness and so on, you don't dream maybe that it's God is going to give you that. In fact, the devil has created a caricature of Christianity in your own head and you think that Christians are miserable, doer, unfulfilled people. So this woman is not seeking for God, but she's seeking for something. And so are you. I wish, and I do more than wish, I, I pray that that blind search for something would become a focused search for God. Because that alone, friends, is what will give you love and peace and joy. The three great graces. Have you ever thought about them, these three great graces? We mention them casually, but think of the three of them. Love, Peace, joy. The more you think about them, the more you realize that's what I need. I need these three. And you can only find them in Christ. She's still looking for something to fill a void, an intellectual void, a relational void, an emotional void. She's thirsty. She's thirsty. The other thing I want to notice about her is that she is also spiritual or religious. She has at least some interest in religious matters. When I'm saying she's spiritual, I don't mean in the New Testament sense. In the New Testament sense of the word spiritual, a spiritual man or a woman is a man or a woman 
in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. So every Christian here tonight is a spiritual person because the Holy Spirit indwells their hearts. It's a wonderful thing. And when they are particularly blessed by the Spirit, we call them particularly spiritual people because they are close to the Lord and the secret of the Lord is with them and the Lord shares much of himself with them and they have much with him in prayer. But fundamentally, a spiritual person is a person in whom the Spirit of God dwells. Now, that's not what I mean when I say that this woman is spiritual. What I mean is that she's just open to these things. Some people are close to that. For some people, matter is all there is. It's a closed universe. Who knows how it came into being? But this world is entirely explicable in terms of physics, chemistry, and biology. And there's nothing more to it than that. It's a poor worldview that, but that's not for tonight. She knows there's more to life than that. As I guess you probably do too, deep down somewhere, you know there's more to life than that. You know there's more to yourself than that. I mean, if I was going to define you as a bit of potassium and iron and carbon and hydrogen and oxygen, so you wouldn't be too happy with that definition of yourself. But according to your understanding, that is the definition of you. You are metals and gases. You know you're more than metals and gases. You know that. In fact, you know that you're far higher than being metals and gases. You are in the image of God who created you. Immortal, never dying soul. With a capacity to love and to hate. With a knowledge of right and wrong, even if it's sometimes skewed. A conscience. And a sense of appearing one day and giving an account at a judgment seat of a God that you don't know. These things are woven right into your being. And you can't shake them off. You'd like to. You can't shake them off. And this woman's religious, she speaks, for example, of our father Jacob who gave us this well. Are you greater? When Jesus says that he can get her living water and she'll never thirst again... Her response is, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Who are, who are you? Are you better than him? Notice that she can't have been descended from the people who were forcibly colonized into this place. She's conscious of a descent from the original inhabitants of the land. She's conscious that she comes from a man called Jacob 2,000 years ago. God hasn't forgotten that either. She's aware of her people and her heritage and she's got some kind of ownership and she's conscious that it's some part of her. I wonder if it's like that with yourself. Uh, we sometimes get interested, as we should be, in our ancestry, genealogy, things like that, who you are, which people you belong to, does it matter to you that perhaps people who were way back in your line were devout Christian men or women? That they took a stand for the Lord? That they lived for the Lord? Humble, devotional, spiritual, prayerful people? And they lived in their own generation in the fear of God? Does it mean anything to you that they're in your line? Does it mean anything to you that they were your grandfather or grandmother or great-father, great-grandfather or great-grandmother? It seems to mean something to her. 
Not enough to change her life. Not enough to save her soul. But something to keep just an interest of some kind there. You'll notice too that when she comes to suspect that Christ is a man of God. I mean when she sees him it's just a stranger there in Jewish clothing. But when she comes to suspect that he's a man of God, she immediately asks him a religious question. Christ, after all, has just told her, I know you've had five husbands, and the one you're now living with is not your husband. The woman said to him, Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain here. They, They must have been very near to Mount Gerizim. And you Jews say that Jerusalem and the temple on Mount Zion is where you should worship. She immediately asks him a religious question in connection with where they should worship. Now, most people tend to see that as what you call a, a diversionary tactic. In other words... You've come close to the bone here. Um, You're starting to speak about my life, my relationships, my marriages and my choices. Let's move the discussion on to where we should worship, places of worship. Now, um, I don't think that is what's happening here, but that does happen a lot. Uh, Maybe you've done it yourself in the past. Maybe you're still doing it. You're interested enough to have a conversation about Christianity with people, providing it's not about you. And if your Christian friend says, well, what about yourself? You'll move on. Change the subject. Now, I suppose we've all done that. Various points. I know I have. I can look back on times when I've moved the conversation on for that reason. Because no, nobody likes to get close like that. But we do need to. It's, it's all very well to talk about churches and religions and faiths, to talk about denominations and all these things that may be interesting enough. Who's got what building and who wants to have a building? It's all very maybe interesting enough, but it won't do. At the end of the day, it's not what this message is about. It's not what God is calling you to. At the end of the day, there's something in our lives that needs opening out. There's something that needs addressing. There's something fundamentally wrong with us. We are actually hell-bound. And we need the grace of God. And there is no way we can receive the cure without acknowledging our sinfulness. It's got to be opened out. And that discussion is there. And when a Christian loves you enough to say, Well, what about you? Uh, And what about your life and your choices and your decisions? Well, you're free enough to say, No, I'm not going there. You're free enough even to say, well, I'm I'm not going to be your friend anymore. But that's not your wisdom. That's not the best course of action to take. If somebody loves your soul and your life and your future enough to talk to you about your need of the Lord Jesus Christ, give that person the time of day, open your ears and speak it through, you may discover like this woman that it's the best thing that you ever did. But I don't think this woman is diverting the question. She could be, but I don't think so. I would tend rather to think that she's genuinely confused. 
And who can blame her? Seven religions in the land. She identifies with the ancient people in Samaria who did worship Jehovah. That's very clear from what she says. And her reference to our father Jacob. And she says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Let me just step back for a little while and again say something in history. If you go back 500 years before this time, the people in Judea, the Jews, they were taken exile. They weren't scattered to the four winds like the northern tribes were, but they were taken temporarily into captivity in Babylon. In the days of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, most of you know that very well. After 70 years, they learned the importance of serving God faithfully. And they came back to the land and they started to rebuild the temple. Who offered help? The Samaritans. It wasn't a genuine offer of help. They didn't like the fact that the Jews were back in the land. But they said, let's build the temple together. We'll help you build the temple. Nehemiah, a man of God, said to them, no, it's, it's mixing with your religion that caused, the first, caused all the problems in the first place. By that time, you see, Samaria was populated by a mixed people. And their form of Jehovah worship, a worship of the true God, had become very corrupt. Um, using images and uh, using a false priesthood and all these. They had their own way of worship. And the, the Jews effectively said, no. It, it's, it's doing things your way that brought us uh, into exile for 70 years in Babylon, so we're not going to do that. What happened was that the Samaritans went and they built their own temple. And they called it a rival temple. And they said that if you're a real worshipper of Jehovah, this is where you've got to worship. They just accepted the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch, their own priesthood, and their own temple. Their own way of worship, their own way of doing things. But there was a dispute. There were some in Samaria who said, this isn't right. God has actually told us how to worship. God, God has told us how we should live. And others said, no, no, we're not going down there. This is our place. This is who we are. Our religion is bound up with our nationality. So it's easy to see how a woman like this is confused. Now my guess is that there's plenty of people out there who are confused. Maybe even there's some people in here who are confused. And I can understand that. Who do we worship? Where do we worship? How do we worship? Some people's answer is God doesn't mind. The problem with that is that God says he does mind. Even here the Lord himself doesn't say to her, it doesn't matter where you worship. You notice in verse 22 that the Lord is actually quite, well we would call it today abrasive, the way that he comes in and says to her, you worship what you do not know. In other words, in Samaria you don't have a clue what you're doing. We know, he says, what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. What he says there essentially is this, is that we have the truth. We have the whole Bible. And the whole Bible is the truth. It is the truth of God. You've cut and pasted it. You've got your own version of it. 
But the Lord says that the whole truth is the truth of God and there God reveals himself plainly. Now the Jews saw it so important to keep a distance between themselves and the Samaritans that they went too far to the point where they became what we would call standoffish. They cut themselves off and there was no communication to the point where we're told in verse 9 that the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And that's why this woman is shocked to find a Jew sitting at her well. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? The Jews and the Samaritans literally wouldn't be seen dead together. They wouldn't share a cemetery space. Why was that? Well, because even the Jewish people themselves have turned away from God. And you know what happens when when religious people turn away from God? The religion becomes cold and it becomes dead. And what they, have, what they had left was what was there largely in Christ's days, a cold orthodoxy mingled with a kind of nationalism. That's all there was. No zeal for the lost. There was no urgency to go into Samaria and to speak to the Samaritans. Okay, it's fair enough to be reasonable about how you dealt with them. You didn't let them take over your religion. You didn't tell them how to run a church. That's fair enough. But does that mean you don't sit down at a well with them? Does that mean that you never share a cup of coffee in a cafe? Does that mean that you don't speak to them in the street or don't care for them? No. And we must all make sure, friends, by the grace of God, that we do that. What is a Samaritan but a lost soul? Just like you were. Just like I was. And it's easy enough for me, myself too, sometimes to retreat and to find myself perhaps passing a few days not having spoken to an unbeliever. Is that good or right? No. Is that the example of the Lord? No. Was it the example of Christianity in better days? No. In the community where I grew up myself, there were men and women who spoke of God all the time. Warmly, lovingly. They never left me with the the impression that they were cold in their orthodoxy. Or that they were, maybe some some were standoffish, but the counterfeit only proves the genuineness of the real article. And I'm sure you know men and women of God who are just like the Lord Jesus Christ and will sit down at a well with you because they care for your soul. She was shocked that he bothered, but he bothered because he cared. And if we care, let's bother. Souls need saving. Now then, this woman goes out to the well on her own in the midday heat A woman with a religious background, an interest in spiritual things, hopelessly confused, five failed or lost marriages, unhappy, unfulfilled in her life. She walks to the well, as she's done before, a lonely woman, there's a stranger sitting there. She can tell from a distance because of the clothing that he wears and the fringe tassels at the bottom, she can tell that he's a Jew. I suppose, you know, she could have stopped and turned back if she was like that herself. Maybe she, she could think, well, what am I going to sit down? What am I going to draw water from when he's sitting watching? But she's not going to go back. The water pot empty is heavy enough. 
she's not going to come back out again. She's going to carry on. She doesn't turn back. It's just as well for her things that she didn't. Uh, sometimes the most important decisions you can make are arrived at by making smaller ones. Um, you decide to come here. You decide you're going to hear the gospel. Maybe it's good for you tonight that you've come to hear the gospel. Maybe you've met the man who was willing to meet yourself. Let's leave for tonight the woman there and we'll come back to the Godly next time. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, who has the power to change a life of a poor man or woman, young or old, unfulfilled and unhappy, without hope and without God in the world, How we rejoice knowing that the power of Christ can still enter such a soul and transform such a soul into a soul that is full and rejoicing, having a spring of living water bubbling up in their own souls unto everlasting life. And Lord, we pray that all of ourselves tonight would be aware that these are the issues with which we are concerned in the gospel. These are the things about which the Bible speaks, and these are the things that draw us here, matters of life and death, matters of eternity, matters of heaven and hell. So, Lord, do us good with them, and may that time come soon when we will yield ourselves to the Lord and receive him into our lives so that he will sup with us and we will sup with him. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Our last uh, singing from the Word of God is in Psalm 86. verse 8 Lord there is none among the gods that may with thee compare and like the works which thou hast done not any work is there and God's greatest work is the redemption of a soul all nations whom thou mayest shall come and worship reverently before thy face. And they, O Lord, thy name shall glorify, because thou art exceeding great, and works by thee are done which are to be admired. And thou art God, thyself alone. Let's sing these three stanzas, eight to ten, standing to sing. Lord, there is none